Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are, but thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you It's the final word story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for another weekend of cricket history. The final weekend before the 2021-2022 men's ashes begins at the Gabba, which means Jeff is still in quarantine in Brisbane. I am still a couple of hours out of Melbourne at my parents' farm. And Jeff, today being the start of December, it's when Spotify begin releasing all of their analytics for the 12 months that have been. Uh, it's always a, quite a nice day for us on the show. I don't use Spotify for podcasts personally, but a lot of people do. Many of them send them through the number of minutes they listen to the final word, and there's some pretty outrageous stats out there today. Yeah, I mean, when I'm seeing 3,000, 4,000, 8,000 sort of minutes, I'm thinking that's <laughs> a lot. You know, that is a lot. And then and then someone like our Jody Hicks correspondent, John O'Halan, comes in with 31,000 minutes, or Michael Holden somewhere up around 40,000, which boggles the mind because if we I'm trying to work this out if if we did you know we do two shows a week and say they go a bit long and say we end up at about three hours a week total that's 150 hours in a year which is uh what nine thousand minutes something like that throw in some daily shows I don't know how many daily shows we did but we did a couple of test series in a world cup so round it up call it 100 daily shows at about 15 minutes each, that's another 25 hours. So that's uh, 1,500 minutes. So we're up to somewhere like 11,500 to 12,000 minutes in total that we made. How did someone listen to 31,000 minutes? <laughs> well, that How? might be we – do, we do hear occasionally people that find the show do start at the beginning, mm. right? They go and listen to the back yeah. catalogue. And not all of that's on our current platform either because the – very early oh, days yeah. when we were at the ABC and the Guardian. I don't think they're on this particular feed. So you've got to really want it to go back to the start. Yeah, yeah, you do. And and it wouldn't be on Spotify either. But, like, I know there are people who put podcasts on. Michael says he puts them on when he goes to bed. Thus, it takes him about four listens to actually hear every episode <laughs> because he's asleep for three quarters of it. But, 
Still, I, look, I suppose if you get the the ten or 11,000 total and then you listen to each show four times, that gets you up to about 40,000 minutes. But nonetheless, it's a hectic achievement. Thanks to everyone who sent those through. Keep pinging them through. We'll share them on our Instagram stories. I must admit, we've not been the best at curating our Instagram feed. In fact, we've been quite poor at it. But, oh, um, but we will do better through the summer. I popped up our live show there yesterday, information about our live show yesterday. Uh, just a reminder that on the 13th of December... Chris Rogers at Melbourne at the Mission to Seafarers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might tell the story as to why I said his name, like Chris Rogers, when we have him on the show, actually, on stage. Yeah, because uh, I was wondering. And I then was the, wondering about there, there, there is a story. And then the 14th of I, December. I might, I, might, I might tell a story about you and Chris Rogers and his phone. I'll, oh, I'll yeah. Just, I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> if, you, um, if, if, if others... Look, I, I'm going to say, I, I, I'm going to put it this way. 98% of it will be about the fact that he made 76 first-class hundreds. We might tell a couple of jokes on the way mm-hmm. through. And then Stephen Finn, former England fast bowler, played in three winning Ashes series. Lovely bloke, now mm-hmm. a commentator with BBC Test Match Special. He'll be with us at Uni Bar in Adelaide on the 14th of December. All the ticket information, yep. finalwordcricket.com forward slash live. There are two ticket links below. We haven't quite sealed the deal on the 4th of January in Sydney. Never fear, those of us who reached out and asked us what's going on there, we are doing a Sydney show on the 4th of January. We just haven't quite nailed down the venue yet. But even if it comes to Mm -hmm. us recording it in a park, standing atop a milk crate um, with a megaphone... In more park. Let's do do it it. at the... um, Look, I, I've, I, a couple of people have made it known to me that we disrespect rugby league on this show. So let's go to that statue outside um, in, in Moore Park where the Cricket New South Wales headquarters is. The, yep. There's a statue of someone throwing a rugby league ball. I don't know who it is because I'm not au fait with the sport. But, you know, we'll, we'll gather around that statue to show our love and respect for the great Peter Volandi's game of <laughs> rugby league. Extremely happy to do so. Let's get rugby league drunk as well on the way through. It'll all be supported by Brick Lane. Not that we're going to overindulge on the Brick Lane, but the, the point is that Brick Lane will be at the Melbourne show, it'll be at the Adelaide mm-hmm. show, it'll be at the Sydney show, so never fear on that front. All the ticket information, as I mentioned, finalworkcricket.com forward slash live. These are great nights. Tickets are selling fast. There is a discount for our patrons, Jeff, which is about roughly, give or take, a third off, I think, is where we landed. You'll be able to find the information for that on the patron page. Jeff, you sent that out on email last week, didn't you? Yeah, there's a post on Patreon. There's a locked post for people who are signed up there. So um, just scroll through if you haven't found it and you would like to get yourself a sweet discount. Bring your mates. Bring the people who love the great game of cricket, who love hearing about the stories of the game, (laughs) be it the stories from the ancient history of it or or, or more uh, recently when it comes to Chris's career, Chris's unbelievable career both uh, at county and shield level and for Australia. And Stephen Finn, who was a three-times Ashes victor on the way through. And I think I think this might be the first time we've ever had a guest who will be taller than me in Stephen Finn, not Chris Rogers. But, yeah. But uh, that's, that's exciting. Well, Finney, I think, is six foot seven, if I recall correctly. So yeah. we told many stories yeah, six, about... Six, seven or six, eight. Yeah, we told many stories about Finney on the show before because Anna Forsyth let's call her our Canada correspondent, each of her nerd pledges mm-hmm. so far have related in some way to Stephen Finn. If there was an unofficial Steve Finn fan club, 
she would be the president of it. So in a way, I'm a, dis- a bit disappointed we can't do this with Anna in attendance in England. Maybe we'll do another live show in England when you're around, Jeff, that Anna's around for as well and mm-hmm. ask Finney to come back and do it a second time because, of course, these live shows don't get put on the yep. podcast feed. That wouldn't be fair to our guests. So um, you've got to be there to hear it So and be part of the, the frivolity of the night, which is always um, an enjoyable thing with lots of fellow travellers. Finalwordcricket.com forward slash live. Jeff, let's get into the show. The reason why we're here is to rattle through numbers in a game that we call... Mm, Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play with the people on our Patreon page. Uh, They support the show. They fund the show. They make the show possible by sending us contributions. A bit here, a bit there. But they're not round numbers. They're very specific numbers. They have a decimal point. They have multiple digits. They they are specific. And they're specific because they relate to, as Michael Clark says, the great game of cricket in some way. But we don't know how. And we have to work out what the relationship is. For instance, first cab off the rank today, Steve Moore has sent in $3.69 Australian cents. And... 369 could be 36.9, could be 3.69, but 369 means something. What does it mean? Triple nice. Here's a clue here from Steve as well. Uh, it relates to the cricketer who was my childhood hero. His wife was a bit of a Karen, but he was more keen on Michelle's. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. This is an interesting one, but I've uh, I've got to the source of this. Uh, it's not to do with Karen Rolton, who has an oval <laughs> named after her where many, many runs are made. It is to do with Richard Hadley. Sir Dick. Richard Hadley was married for a long time to another New Zealand cricketer whose name was Karen Marsh. As far as I can tell, no relation to the Australian cricket marshes. I couldn't say that for sure, but I couldn't find any link. And believe me, I looked. Karen Marsh played one match for New Zealand in the second Women's World Cup in Hyderabad in January 1978. Although, because the women played the first Cricket World Cup, really, they should be the ones who don't need the specification about it being the Women's World Cup. They <laughs> played the World Cup and then a Men's World Cup came along and got played afterwards. So Karen Marsh had a, a bit of a Jody Hicks, thanks for coming, in that game. She did get to face a few balls, made 14 runs, didn't bowl, didn't do anything in the field as England strolled home and beat New Zealand in that match. And that was her only appearance for New Zealand. But she played in New Zealand And she ended up marrying Sir Richard Hadley slash Edmund Hillary because I can't tell them apart for some reason. Um, Every time I see a photograph of one of them, I think it might be the other one. So Sir Richard Hadley got to play a lot more cricket than Karen Marsh. He played over 200 times for New Zealand and they had one son for each 100 games that Sir Richard played. So they had two sons. They were married for quite a long time. Eventually, the relationship ended many, many years later. But in the interim, before that, Richard Hadley became the best player New Zealand ever had still would be I mean Kane Williamson has done a lot but doesn't have to carry the team in the same way that Richard Hadley did through his whole tenure averaging 27 with the bat and 22 with the ball over 3,000 runs over 400 wickets just an extraordinary player in and in that team with the the vastly 
varying range of quality in that team. It was that was the reason there's the famous quote from Graham Gooch describing playing New Zealand as Richard Hadley at one end, Ilford seconds at the other. <laughs> Every successful match or series they had in his tenure was built on his performances. And uh, so Steve said he was more keen on Michelle's. That is a, a humorous joke from the 1990s in which a five-wicket hole in an innings, which is called a Pfeiffer, becomes called a Michelle, a Michelle Pfeiffer. Ha, ha, ha. Very clever. Very good. Occasionally, I mean, that's... For, for, I feel like that came out of 90s Australia. It's got very 90s Australia areas, doesn't it? Sort of Shane Warne, Greg oh, Hewitt yes. type uh, stuff. I mean, it, well, the fact that it still gets said now by on commentary by players from that era reinforces your, mm. your suspicion. That is bang, smack bang in the middle of Australian cricket culture. I'd say like late 90s <laughs> if I was to, put a, if I was to yeah. put, put a dart on the board as to where it might have started. I reckon about 1997. Find me anyone under 30 who knows who Michelle Pfeiffer is. <laughs> you know? But there was a time, there was a time around, you know, Dangerous Minds and maybe Batman, was, did she play Catwoman? Maybe something like that. There was a time when she was, she was it, she was big. Sharon Stone and Michelle Pfeiffer, they were the oof, they were the stars. So that's about as good as Australian nicknaming gets. The I remember there was one there was a Geelong footballer called Kane Tenace, uh, spelt T E N A C E, and his nickname was Blackjack, as in ten ace. Oh, ten and an ace, you get blackjack. <laughs> and like you know, that's pretty good. But that's those are the real outliers in Australian nicknaming. I was gonna culture. say, by Australian standards, they're one and two on the podium, I reckon. That's Oscar Wilde. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I didn't get much. I mean, I was going to be before I was born. I was going to be Collo, right? Like there was no, there was no yeah. doubt about that. The fact that you hate getting called Lemo brings me great joy. Never have I seen you I recoil I the way you recoil when someone says, "Hey, Lemo," and you're like, "Oh gosh, for fuck's sake!" Yes, oh, I am from God. Australia. You, 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 yeah. you, you lament. Well, I don't get it much, um, but I, t- I mean, I don't like any of I don't like Colo. I don't use it. I refuse to use it. I'm a, I'm a conscientious objector. Um, <laughs> and so if anyone, look, I'm like, his name's Adam. Just call him Adam. <laughs> Jesus Christ. If you must, you can call him Colin Adams, as you're known by the admin staff at Cape Town, was it? Yes. Um, and Twitter.com as well. <laughs> figure out how the name. Yeah, yeah, Colin Adams. <laughs> um, right. Anyway, so Pfeiffer's are Michelle's. That's how the that's how the slang works. And indeed, Richard Hadley was very keen on five wicket hauls, uh, so much so that his final ball in Test cricket was a wicket taking delivery that gave him his fifth for the innings as he as he left the Test arena. Overall, he took a five for every four innings that he bowled in Test cricket. Which is insane. He had the records until Murali came along and got them. And 369 for Steve is because Richard Hadley ended up with 36 innings where he took fivers, that's the 3 6, and nine matches where he took 10 wickets in a match. So 36 and 9 were the stats for Richard Hadley at the end of his career. Nicely done. He turned 70 earlier this year, Sir Richard Hadley, and there was a, a nice bit that Test Match Special did. Jeremy Coney, who, who, who was his captain, and I wouldn't say adversary, but, I mean, they, they weren't the best of friends, but they were colleagues, and Coney has an extraordinary respect for Hadley. But he went through, like, the progression of Hadley and how he went from being one type of bowler, kind of an out-and-out quick, into this metronomic 
machine uh, who just took, I mean, you say he took one five for every four innings. It was probably one in every two and a half or three innings by the time he got towards the end of his career. No one's had a 30s quite like Hadley with the exception of James Anderson. Jared Kimber um, went through this recently as well, I think, uh, when talking about mm. Anderson and using uh, Hadley as the, as the benchmark against what he's been able to achieve since turning 30. So, yeah, quite the bowler. Well, he didn't take one in his first 15 innings, so if and, and he bowled in, in 150 innings. So if you take the, even if you just take those out of the equation from the point that he took his first five for when he was still relatively young, he took one every what's that 3.7 or something, mm. 3.6, mm. something like that. So even from that point, he was extraordinarily prolific in in taking five fives, which you know it also helps when you're by far and away the best bowler in the team, so you get more overs. But it's more difficult to do that as a quick than to be a, an endurance freak like Murali who could just come on and bowl 60 overs straight through an innings uh, in, in a way that very few have been able to do. But that is Steve's number. And Steve, you came out of the hat. You win the Brick Lane giveaway. You get to give away a case of Brick Lane beer to yourself or someone else as long as they're in Australia. Uh, you will be sent... The details on how to do that by the fine people at that uh, brewery. And, uh, yep, it's Christmas coming, so you get to be Santa. I cannot wait to delete a couple of brick lanes when I get back to Melbourne this weekend, Jeff. I've not had the honour yet. Uh, I went to the pub on Friday night, but it it wasn't at any of the brick lane pubs, but I'm going to make amends uh, over the weekend. Uh, and then presumably throughout the time I'm staying in Melbourne, which is the majority of time uh, through December with Mm -hmm. the exception of the Adelaide Test match. I won't use the Marsh 182 code. If you jump on, the only reason I won't is I want to pay full freight because Brick Lane have been such great supporters of of what we're doing here. But if you want to receive 15% off Brick Lane, and we know that people tend to buy um, beer in bulk around the festive season, around Christmas parties and, and Christmas Day and all the rest of it. Why not jump mm-hmm. on uh, the Brick Lane website, all in the show notes, and, and put in the code MARSH182, and that'll get you 15% off. And I'll tell you what, there aren't many breweries giving a discount during December. It's peak season. You, you know, if you can find a slab mm-hmm. of beer with 15% off it in Australia in December, you're doing bloody well. Well, you've got one through the final word. So buy all of your Christmas beer through the brewery that's making some of the best beers in the country, nay, the world. And I can't wait to yeah, get stuck in over the weekend. Jay mentioned off the top in our intro that we are looking to spend some time in a Brick Lane pub on New Year's Eve. Now, that's uh, not for the midnight bit. That's not for the countdown and not to snog us necessarily. This is for lunch. What we're hoping to do, and we might try and do this during the Boxing Day test for the daily shows as well, is to record our end-of-year episode that we've done. Every year we've done the pod, as is the custom, end of year. Mm Mm-hmm. You record an interview show. That's the way the podcast world. But we're hoping on New Year's Eve around lunchtime to go to a Brick Lane pub in Melbourne and not do it as a live show, but kind of like we all gather around a big table and do it together and have a bite to eat afterwards and enjoy a couple of Brick Lanes. So a bit of a watch this space on that front. And thanks to the team there again for being great supporters of what we've done through 2021. And again, so it'll be in 2022. BrickLaneBrewing.com. Our next number comes in from Julian King. It is in Great British Pounds. It's 382. And Julian says the only clue is that this this was before we played the final word game a few months ago. The only clue is that if you need an ageing, non-spinning, off-spinner and agricultural batsman who seems to come off once or twice a year, I'm fairly local. <laughs> so, okay. 
well, there you go, Adam. What well, do you we, got? Well, <laughs> we didn't end up having Julian in the team, but I can say off the top uh, that the vaccine game will be happening again next year. Uh, I went with Zish to watch Dalwich Hamlet play before leaving London. Uh, Zish, of course, captains the Oval Dream Boys, so we'll have at least one fixture next season, hopefully a couple, but when we're going through the fixture list, we'll find a date, and hopefully Julian can join us for what will then be the third game played by the final Word 11, because, Jeff, you uh, have been working on getting our Sydney game up in January. More details about mm-hmm. that in a couple of weeks. We're just putting the, the final touches on that, but it's definitely happening, as it will again uh, against the Dream Boys in 2022. Right, as for this number that Julian has sent through, 382, well, I had a few things I was looking at. Uh, at first, I thought, well, let's see whether anyone's made 382 in first-class cricket. Uh, no one has. There was a 383, though, made by... Um, Charles Gregory, who was the brother of Sid, he made that for New South Wales. Mm. What I found, the Gregory clan, yes, the many, many Gregories: Dave Gregory, Ned Gregory, Charles Gregory, Sid Gregory, Nellie Gregory, Jack Gregory. Uh, I, I've probably missed about six, but that's some of them. Well, how about this for Charles? He only made two first-class centuries in 31 matches and average 33. Never played for Australia, but one of his first-class tons was a 383. Jeff, I know you you love that little subset Ooh. of your spreadsheet on players who've only uh-huh. made a double ton or only made a triple ton or whatever it is. I can't imagine there's yeah. anyone who's oh, made There's a only score. one of those. There's only Karen Nair who's only made a triple and that's it. Right, um, right. But, but even at first class level, I'd be surprised if there's anyone who's made a triple and only made one other score above 100 in first class ranks. So maybe um, Charles what, what Gregory... About the- the Dera Ishmael Khan game did um, did the triple hundred in that game. I, I seem to recall Ooh, that's a no good one in that question. game had, a, had yes. a particularly great career after that. Uh, Java Miandad made a century in a Dera Ishmael Khan game, but he wasn't the triple ton. I can't remember who that was, but I've got a feeling it was that they never played for Pakistan. That they played quite a bit of first class cricket for Lahore, but hadn't. Um, mm hadn't made the step up. But, yeah, I, I, look, if you can find that out, that feels like a Pat Rogers one for me. If you can find another player who's made two tons in first-class cricket and one of them's a triple, send it our way. But, anyway, it, it wasn't 382, so we'll move on from that. England was set 383 to win at Old Trafford in 2019. So, I guess Australia were 382 ahead at the start of the fourth innings. Brett Lee was cap number 383, but, again, none of this quite works. What does work, though, is Alan Oakman who played two test matches in 1956 and was cap 382. Now, he's quite a DOB, but I'm not sure whether playing in 1956 quite qualifies as a dusty old bastard. This comes back to our our um, fluid way of uh, identifying DOBs, but I've just my gut said if you've played in the Laker match of 1956, which he did, it was uh, Alan Oakman's second and final test match, that you probably can't be a DOB because that test match was played with the glare of television cameras, albeit not live to air, but they did have um, – that was all filmed and, and, of course, it was on, on radio. It was the year before TMS started, but mm-hmm. um, but it, he did um, play in that game. And just like Julian King, I thought an off-spinner who gave it a whack, well – so was Alan Oakman. He played 538 first-class games for Sussex across 21 years from 1947 uh, to 1968. As I mentioned before, he got two test matches against the touring Australians in the 1956 Ashes. That was all after 
uh, serving uh, with distinction for the Welsh Guards in, in the uh, British Army in World War II. He was a huge man. He was six foot six, which, of course, helped with his office, which was his principal task. He was an all-rounder, but mainly an off-spinner, and he took 736 wickets. Also made 22 first-class tonnes, but, yeah, he's best known for taking five catches out of Lakers' 19 wickets in that Manchester test in, in 1956. So a huge man. He was crowded around the bat and, and took five catches close in out of, yeah, as I say, the 19 that, that Laker took, including the 10 for 66. He only got a bowl for six overs in that second dig because Laker was doing all of the heavy lifting uh, along the way. Um, he was still contributing to the game into his 50s. He captained the Warwickshire over 50s until he was 70 years old, uh, and he died um, just a few years ago in, in, in September of 2018 at age 88 after a, a long career of service to the sport. But all along, just like Julian, Alan Oakman was a proud off spinner and he wore cap 382. Alan Oakman. Imagine if he could be selling flavoured milk as a mascot, you know, a la Duff Man. <laughs> um, Duff Man. <laughs> Can't breathe. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to tell you, Adam, that Pervez Akhtar, who made the 337 against Derek Ishmael Khan, yes. uh, not only was that the only century of his first-class career, he made one other 50 in his first-class career. Mm-hmm. He had a career of 18 innings. In that one innings, he made 337. In all of his other innings combined, he made 263. <laughs> Actually, on reflection, I think I did know that. I think we did that at, at the yeah. time. So your, your your original recollection was correct. So uh, yeah. piss off, Charles Gregory. Uh, it's not you. <laughs> it's Pervez Akhtar and Karen Nair there. Speaking the of, by the way. Karen Nair has had a better first-class career. Now we're talking yeah. about Pakistan. Let's just go there for a sec. Well, let's, not go sure. there. let's go there for four weeks because that's what you and I are going to yeah, do let's in do March. All things being equal. Uh-huh. I mean, dill, dill. We, we dare to dream. We dare to dream. I've pretty much cleared this with Rach that much as it will pain me to be away from home and away from my family for four weeks I think we are duty bound to go on that tour three test Mm -hmm. matches I think it starts at Karachi then we go to Royal Pindi and then we get the Royal Pindi Express if there's if there's a disaster, can we have the Malachi and Karachi? I, there's your, there's going to be your intro paragraph when Australia is scheduled for 72 at one stage. <laughs> then it'll, then we go from Royal Pindi, well, Islamabad, but mm-hmm. Royal Pindi is where the, the train goes, as we know, from Shah Bakhtar. We catch the express to Lahore, four hours mm-hmm. uh, through the Pakistani inter- hinterland. Probably not the hinterland, but it sounds Driven good. by Shah Bakhtar. Yeah, driven he's by, up presumably. He's whoop up the front. Whoop. Yeah, he's, he's driving it. 100 miles an hour, the, the train whole goes, way there. The train goes slower than he bowls. <laughs> <laughs> then, we, then we rock up at Lahore for the third and final test. I think that's the order. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, yep. yeah, three test matches in four weeks. We wouldn't want to be anywhere else. That's in March, which means that I think there's a gap that mm-hmm. makes this all tie together in terms of sort of doing the tour bit. So I know we signed up a bunch of people earlier in the year for this, but we're going to be revisiting it properly over the next month or so as we kind of work out the art of the possible, how many people might join us in, in Pakistan. It'll mean the Brazil trip doesn't quite tack on the back of it as we originally envisaged, but um, that'll be our second final word tour when we get to Brazil, perhaps a little bit later in 2022. Yeah, I think maybe splitting them up is more feasible given that they're not exactly in uh contiguous parts of the world you know it's not a it's not a logical transit hop from Karachi to Rio de Janeiro 
But anyway, so we've come to an end of what we've got through all of two numbers now. Okay, good. Julian King, you're <laughs> ticked off. Jeffrey Gabriel next up, Australian dollars, 604. We've got a clue. Uh, Jeffrey says, the son of an Englishman, this blue bagger achieved a double blue, a third in a three-peat. But unlike the two double blues before him, this blue bagger was never a blue bag. He contributed heaps before he was trout. Heaps with a capital H and trout with a capital T. Jeff, as soon as I saw this, I'm thinking Sturt. But let's see where you take it. Okay. Well, I, I did not think Sturt, so I'm interested to see where you went with that after I run through this. Now, this is – Jeffrey Gabriel's obviously been reading a lot of cryptic crossword clues because there, there are a lot of hints in here. So the son of an Englishman, but Englishman is in inverted commas. Three Pete is like the name Pete, not like – you know, the Brisbane Lions, three-peat. And so there are these other hints and heaps and trout, but double blue, blue bag of double blue. So the first thing that I thought of was, is this someone who played for New South Wales who also got a university blue? Because a blue bagger is a New South Wales player, someone who wears the baggy mm-hmm. blue cap, and you get a blue if you play cricket for Oxford or Cambridge. So was there anyone who did both? There, there was a New South Wales cricketer named Peter Carroll who played who got a blue at, I can't remember which of the universities, but one of them, maybe it was, I think it was Oxford. But he never played for New South Wales. The only first-class matches on his record are for the university. He played um, district cricket and so on in, in New South Wales. Peter Roebuck was a Cambridge blue who went on to live in New South Wales, but he's, you know you, that would be a, too much of a stretch to call him a blue bagger. Did I then go through the list of every single New South Wales cricketer and find everyone named Peter and work out whether they went to Oxford or Cambridge. Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> none of, as far as I could tell, none of them were. No no capped New South Wales player. And the other clue is a blue bagger but never a blue bag. As far as I can tell, a blue bag is also slang for a lawyer because apparently they send off their court robes in a blue bag to be laundered. Uh, so then I was looking for players named Peter for New South Wales who've been lawyers, but I couldn't find any of them either. So dead end there. I don't know if that's what Jeffrey was trying to put across, but if so, I couldn't work it out. So I went to the other end of the clue. The best thing I could find about New South Wales and, and Heaps with a, a capital H, Heaps Oval is the name of the ground in Lismore, the cricket ground there. So I then spent a lot of time looking for former curators of Heaps Oval in Lismore to find out if there was anyone who'd played for New South Wales who did that, but there wasn't anything there. And the only Lismore cricketers I can think of are Adam Gilchrist, Sammy Joe Johnson and Georgia Redmayne. So that's as far as I got. I'm showing some workings basically because I have no clue, none whatsoever, after doing all of that. I still couldn't find anything, but it was an interesting journey along the way. Yeah, look, I just saw Double Blues and thought of Sturt. They won five in a row under Jack Oti between 1967, sorry, 1966 rather, and 1970. And then I kind of thought Blue Baggers, who played for Sturt and Carlton, Peter Motley, but um, and he was a premiership player, I think, with Sturt. No, Sturt. He, Sturt in the SANFL. Is that a South Australian club? Yeah, yeah they were. So no, 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 Motley, Motley, Motley couldn't have played. Well, I'm just trying to find a way through here with Sturt cricket. I'm just trying to find, like, I want, I ponder mm. whether this might be a football thing that we're missing here. So Sturt being the double blues, oh, yeah. Carlton being the blue baggers. And th- there'll be others, but, but Motley, oh. Motley before um, his tragic uh, accident 
played for Sturt first, then went to Carlton Premiership player, then then that car accident which ended his career and affected his life, of right. course. But again, that's the only... Um, there'll be others. I mean, Andrew Faulkner, the great Sturt uh, and cricket historian, journalist, worked for The Australian for a long time. We've toured with him. If, if there's anything in this clue... He'll pick the eyes out of it, as might Matt Clemo, uh, who is running our live show in Adelaide again this year, and we love him dearly. He's a Sturt diehard as well. So we have Sturt people (laughs) with us. If that is where this is going, we'll share this clue with them. Uh, They'll be able to uh, get to the bottom of it. But, yeah, I was just trying to think. There was no three-peat there. I thought maybe there might be a Sturt three-peat, but they won five on the trot. No, no, but this is... is it, it's not a three-peat in that sense. It's three-peat with a capital P. So it's three people named Peter. So, oh, right. So, right, so, right, so, right. So this blue bagger achieved the double blue and was presumably the third person to do it and all of them were called Peter. Oh, I see. That's, okay. All right. Well, maybe, I've, maybe I've lost the thing. I mean, yeah, again, the, the really kind of most well-known Sturt player, I suppose, is Rick Davies, isn't it? The Jumbo Prince. But, uh, yeah, I, I doubt that's going to come back here. I'm just flexing here to know that I know a little <laughs> bit about the SANFL. Could it be someone who played either football for Sturt or Carlton and yeah. cricket for New South Wales? Yeah, I, I, I think that's what we're going to get to here. I, I'm not... I'm is not sufficiently tooled up to know the answer, but I'd be surprised if this is not where we get to in the revisit. I should say, by the way, um, for Jeffrey's benefit and everyone else's, that mm. we're not going to do revisits for a few weeks. We are going to press pause. Today will be the last time we do revisits, probably until the end of the Ashes, purely because we're going to have to record these story time editions out of sequence. We're going to get them done um, in groups because they'll be weeks of the year or weeks of the series rather when we won't have time between the weekly show and the daily shows to put in the research we've been doing that in the last couple of weeks so it might be a while before we get to Jeffrey Gabriel's revisit so that'll give us time to explore this thoroughly well so what I'm going to throw out there is that players certainly players who play top level Australian rules and cricket I think we know of most of them because we've talked on the show about Roy Park about Laurie Nash about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, everybody knows about Shane Warne and the St Kilda Reserves. Um, but whether there's someone who played state cricket for New South Wales and top-level Aussie rules, there probably are a few. Um, but whether, Yes. Uh, Craig Bradley? Mm-hmm. Craig Bradley played for Sturt, did he not? It'll be embarrassing if he didn't. I'm pretty yes. sure Craig Bradley played for Sturt. And he, of course, played for Carlton. Carlton. So, so there's another crossover. No, but he did play. But he did play cricket for Victoria. Did he? No, actually, that's not right. Of course, Craig Bradley played for Port Adelaide in the SANFL before coming over in that same generation as Kernahan and, and Platten and Co. But no, that's not right. I I, mis- I misremembered that. So he's a Port Adelaide player, but he did play state cricket for Victoria a couple of times. Mm. So oh, I don't know. I'm in the weeds here. I'm sorry, Jeffrey. I'm both okay. Jeffreys. I'm sorry to you no. both for for skewing this. <laughs> No, that's all right. I, I think we've uh, we've at least done some work on it. So, uh, JG, let us know and we'll come back to this when we get back to the, the revisits after the summer of cricket. That's 6.04 for Jeffrey Gabriel. Next up, Chris Unwin, £454, £4.54. Okay. Hi, Chris. Uh, right. An old pleasure who's back again. Uh, we've enjoyed Chris's numbers. I know that Chris hails from Lanks, so that wasn't obviously what I was thinking about when I immediately popped down that 454 was the score that Australia made when Marnus made his double ton at Sydney a couple of years ago. He's 215. That gave Marnus a summer that was worth 837 runs at an average of 199.57. So the double at Sydney 
two one fifties, a century, and mm. two half centuries, which is the most runs made in a completed Australian summer, overtaking Neil Harvey, who made eight hundred and thirty four against the touring South Africans in nineteen fifty two fifty three. Australia also oh, made. The, uh, was that the two all the two all series? I think it was. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Yes. Yeah. So um, Harvey dominated there. 2009, Australia-Pakistan at the MCG. Jeff, a game that both of us were at, a test match where Australia made 454 for five in the first innings where Watto was involved in a in a comical run out with Simon Kadic the first time around where they're both diving to the same end and I think Kadic got back by a millimetre or thereabouts. So Watto was run out for 93, Cat was out for 99 or 98 or something like that. There was that run where both of them kept getting out in the 90s through that summer. Mm-hmm. But then later in the test, in the second dig, Watto at long last secured his first test century, 120 not out, albeit after being dropped on 99 by Muhammad Amir at point, Jeff, I think it was, if I recall correctly. Does that sound bad? Right? Was he bowling or I think he's fielding at point, wasn't he, Muhammad Amir? No. Muhammad Amir dropped Ponting on Nort in Hobart. That was the next week, yeah. I don't think he dropped. Uh, I don't think he dropped. It it was in the gully, so I don't think Amir would have been in the gully. Right. I think he was um, bowling then. He he might have been. Yeah, he might have been. But either way, I know Muhammad Amir was involved in in the dismissal that wasn't with Watson on 99. They scamper through for a single. He's nearly run out, completing his 100th run. But God love him. Watto gets his century. Now, that brought me to something that I... Sally Malek must have had a few bucks on Watto getting (laughs) That that brought me to um, uh, to something that I looked up a couple of years ago and I thought I'd revisit it here in relation to Shane Watson's centuries and how many people physically observed them. So that day at the MCG, day four, Australia-Pakistan, there were only 15,587 people there. Not a great showing from the Melbourne crowd, but you sometimes get that when people go back to work uh, towards the end of, of the Melbourne test. His other three test centuries were at Mahali in 2010, the Oval in 2013, mm-hmm. and Perth in 2013. Now, the Oval was day one. You were there. That would have been capacity. The capacity yep. of the Oval at the time was 23,500. Let's take it as assumed that every seat was taken when Watto raised three figures there. Mahali, on the other hand, uh, the attendance there was 26,001. That's what that, that ground holds. However, I went back and watched the footage of India winning that thrilling test match by one wicket, and mm. it's like a third full. It's a third, genuinely a third full. So on that basis, I'm mm. willing to say that 10,000 people were there on day one to watch Watson's century. So 15,587, 23,500 at the Oval, 10,000 at Mahali. And then at Perth in 2013, there was 15,958 there when Watson brought up his century on the fourth day. Another comical moment too, wasn't it, that Watto was dropped off the bowling of James Anderson and run out from the same ball, something like that, uh, having just passed 100? Yeah, it was so okay, so he went. He made something like seventy six off about thirty five balls. Um, he he got to about thirty odd, and then he just went absolutely nuts. Smashed Graham Swan out of his Test career. Got to his hundred. Got to one hundred and four. Took on Anderson. Huge top edge goes. You know, forty meters up in the air. Just <laughs> just massive, but straight up. And Ian Bell is standing literally in the middle of the pitch, waiting for it to come down. 
And it comes down and just goes clean through his hands and onto the ground. And Ian Bell just stares down at the ground at the ball. And then he looks up and realises Shane Watson is standing next to him, also staring at the ball because he was expecting to be caught. And he just hadn't bothered to finish the run. (laughs) He's just standing there. And then he's like, oh, shit, and tries to run for the other end. And Bell picks it up and throws the stumps down. It uh, it was one of the great moments. Job done, Watto. And I suppose that preceded the George Bailey um, 6-4-6-4-6-4 over, which prompted the declaration yeah, and then two. after that it's mm-hmm. the uh, Ryan Harris delivery to Alistair Cook I think the anniversary of that was um, was a couple of days ago something like that anyway so I've gone through it and t- toted it all up and if you assume there was only 10,000 at Mahali which I think is reasonable there's no reporting of it that means that at absolute max 65,045 people have witnessed Shane Watson make a test century and Jeff you've wow. done it and Jeff you've done it twice which I think mate, no three no three times rather three times were you there for the MCG one I, I yep. assumed you you were you were there uh-huh. day four uh, wait no I wasn't there because uh, I was living in Argentina okay so that I missed out on that so one. that means well okay, I was so, listening to it on the radio so you've seen two of the four there won't be many mm. who've seen three of the four some of our press box colleagues perhaps and I doubt anyone does mm. the clean sweep but the point here is that it feels a bit wrong doesn't it that only sixty five thousand people and a bit. Got to see mm. Watson celebrate a test century. So that won't be where Chris Unwin was going, but I just thought that was worth tallying, uh, given it was something <laughs> I was thinking about a couple of years ago. All right, Chris, whatever your number is, um, you can look forward to hearing about it in about two months' time when we do <laughs> Next up is Rob Taylor in the GBP. Two six zero is the number. Um, Jeff, it's a free swing, no clue. 260. Okay, so not not many interesting test innings of 260, um, although Conrad Hunt got one uh, who's, who's always – it's always a good name to use as a euphemism if you want to insult somebody, you know, C, C Hunt. What a Conrad Hunt. It is, it is, however, you may be interested to know, Adam, Mark Taylor's career test bowling average is 26. He – Took one for 11 when he got his one test wicket of Rashid Latif at Royal Pindi. Took the express down there um, and bowled some express filth and picked up his only test wicket. And then he bowled one other time in test cricket to return figures of none for 15. So one for 26 was his total across his career. Bowling average of 26. Barry Richards also has a bowling average of 26 in his four test matches um, and a batting average of 72 but doesn't get on the average lists because he didn't play enough test cricket uh, before apartheid affected the isolation of South Africa and uh, he spent the rest of his time doing things in domestic cricket around the world. Brett Jeeves in One Day Internationals averaged 26 with the ball. Uh, He had a contrasting career in his two matches, I think you'd say, Brett Jeeves. He took two for 11 of five overs against the might of Bangladesh in Darwin. And then he played one game in South Africa and took one for 67 off 10. So his bowling average in his first game was 5.5 and then in his second game was 67. Um, Collectively, that makes 26. Uh, But lastly, it brought me down to the test bowling average of Dawn Ray. Now, she was a a long-term district cricketer playing for Collingwood, also played for Victoria this was through the 1970s mostly and late 60s and she won Australian selection for a test match in 1972, one test against New Zealand in Melbourne, which the Kiwis won um, somewhat surprisingly. Dawn Ray played four times in the first World Cup, 
though she didn't make any runs and got dropped before the last couple of ga- well the second last game was a washout and, and then she didn't play in the final but uh, a major contribution that she did make was bringing through Ray Lee Thompson first into club cricket and then into state and international cricket and Ray Lee Thompson would go on to debut in the same test match with, that Dawn Ray played her at Dawn Ray's only test and Ray Lee Thompson played for another 15 years, ended up captaining Australia and became one of the, the most significant players in Australian women's cricket history. So uh, Dawn Ray made that contribution to Australian cricket and still ends up with a very rare distinction of a test average of 26 with the bat and 26 with the ball. That's very nicely done. And not the last we're going to hear about Australia, New Zealand, women's tests before the show is out. There's a little teaser for you there, Jeff. Oh, really? Uh, I wonder how you've gone there uh, with Rob Taylor's 260. Um, next up, Sam Ashworth. Our second uh, Lancashire clue in a row that I've got. In the, There's no clue, but I know that's where Sam hails from, from Blackpool originally. We've done numbers for Sam before, which have uh, related to that beautiful part of the world. So I immediately thought, well... Lancashire, and knowing roughly how old Sam is, you know, about our age, maybe a fraction younger, he almost certainly, I reckon, is talking about the great Lancashire import, Wazi Makram, and the 414 uh, test wickets that Waz took for Pakistan. But yeah, a true overseas legend, if ever there was one, for Lanx uh, between 1988 and 1998. He wasn't the sort of first star to come from overseas to play for Lancashire. Remembering, of course, this was the era when Yorkshire didn't have overseas players, whereas across the Pennines they had Farouk Engineer, Clive Lloyd, who was an all-time great there too. But Waz kind of takes it to a whole new level through uh, his glory days and what became a bit of a, a white ball glory period for Lancashire as well. He burst through in 1988 with 31 wickets at, at 21 and he tells a, a great anecdote about this season which I, I picked up here and I thought I'd read in full. I embrace their culture and they embrace me. I was one of them. Straight away I thought I'm going to make friends here. Fairbrother, Atherton, Allett, Fowler, Dave Hughes, our captain, Alan Omerod, our coach, picked me up from the airport and dropped me at the place I was staying and said he'd be back later to pick me up because we had a meeting that evening in the bar. What? In the bar? That can't be right. I come from Pakistani culture. But I walked in there that night expecting to talk about cricket and the opposition. I didn't even know who we were playing. I didn't know the names of most of my own team. I just turned up and everyone had a pint of lager in their hands. Hey, Wazim, welcome. <laughs> Fair to say he was at home from that point forth. Waz, who, who certainly enjoyed his time uh, on the circuit on and off the field. 1990, two years later, was when he won his first trophy for the club. That was the Benson and Hedges final at Lords against Worcestershire. We were talking about the uh, 1989 B&H final a couple of weeks ago, weren't we? Um, it was all built up before the game in the press as Wazzy Macram against Graham Hick. He was a you know, just on the cusp of being eligible to play for England and dominating for Worcestershire at the time. But Wazim gets uh, Hick out in the first over. He bounces him out, actually. And he finishes with three for 30 from 11 overs in a sort of match-winning display. He'd already smacked 28 not out from 21 with batting. Uh, they won big. Apparently, it was a huge after-party, which Wazim talks about as well as being a, a memorable time. Early days when he was a young boy there at Old Trafford. Uh, they went on to win five white ball trophies in the decade uh, that he was there for. In 1998, he was captain. They had a great season. They came second in the championship and won the double. They won two of the, the white ball trophies. 
uh, they came perilously close to winning the championship as well. They'd have to wait until 2011 for that in their own right, Lancashire. All told, 374 first-class wickets for the club at 21. He took 30 fifers and seven 10-wicket matches, four tonnes, uh, an average of 25, a further 206 list-day wickets at 21, a strike rate of 30, run, four runs per over, went bowling with the white ball for Lancashire. So he was an all-round star. And, of course, the aforementioned 414 test wickets in a stellar test career for Pakistan, which I reckon is where Sam Ashworth was going. And in a BBC poll just last year of Lancashire fans, uh, 29% uh, said he's the greatest uh, overseas player that Lancs have ever had, uh, only behind Clive Lloyd, who who 66% went with. But uh, still, uh, through that period of the 90s when he was at his best, he was he was invincible, especially in England. Very good. The combined might of Wasim and Waka we talked about last week and then the county cricket career of Wasim Akram this week. It's Wasim Fortnite on the final. Ever since seeing him dance in that video <laughs> from Pakistani TV during the T20 World Cup, you could tell he was a man who knew his way around a dance floor. My word, my uh, word. <laughs> Brendan Legg is next up with uh, 151 Aussie dollars. Got a clue here uh, for you, Jeff. It relates to a first-class game, my most fond live cricket experience. My dad took a uni-aged me and my friend to day three. Day five was a Tuesday, and my friend and I skipped class to watch history. At lunch, we walked to the Morrison Hotel and brought a bottle of Passion Pop each. After the game, we jumped the fence into the members' area and were quickly expelled, but on our way out, bumped into a former Lord Mayor curator who was also thrilled at the result. A memorable game by any standard. And Jeff, I, I don't know what you've written here, but I'm pretty sure who you're going to talk about. <laughs> uh, Lord Mayor curators do narrow it down quite a bit. <laughs> 151 is what Trevor Barsby made to set up Queensland's first Sheffield Shield win in 1995. Mr Sheffield! <laughs> um, in, incidentally, we had sent through to us um, in, in the DMs during the week a link to Fran Drescher's cameo uh, in which you can get a, get a message from Fran. The payments all go to charity. Um, she has a charity set up, but the... The subscriber price for a personal video is something like $1,050. It's steep. <laughs> it's very steep. So, <laughs> If you I, want to do I, something nice for I, Jeff I and I over Christmas, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Spend, spend it on something better. Get like 80 slabs of Brick Lane at 15% off. Don't, um, it's probably not worth the, um, the steepness of the impost. But I was also like, have I probably spent $1,000 in my life on stupider things? Cumulatively, probably. Um, I say do a video of yourself. Give us your own cameo of um, she was working in a bridal shop in Flushing, Queens, till her boyfriend kicked her out (laughs) in one of those crushing scenes. Give us a bit of that, uh, the whole song Uh on video, that we will appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real stretch in that that song. She's the lady in red when everybody else is wearing tan. I mean, what? Yeah. Like, you're just trying to find something to rhyme with Fran at that point. That line reeks of desperation. Yeah, that's that, that, that's, that's right. like, 
That's like when Sinatra says, you know, I didn't do it the shy way. And it's like, <laughs> you just ran out of shit to rhyme with my way. You, you used highway, you used byway. There was nothing left. You had to go with shy way. And it was always with everybody wearing tan. <laughs> and it was always a thing with the, the American use of fanny as well. What was she to do? Where was she to go? She was out on her fanny, uh, which as, a, as an 11-year-old growing up, that was rather amusing because we didn't know yeah. about fanny packs and all the rest and the way right. the Americans used that term, did we? I mean, that's... Sort of, Luckily, no. they had the cartoon though, which which very explicitly showed what she was landing on, with you know sort of movement lines and so on to indicate the impact of her landing on on her posterior outside the the shop. So I feel like that was an education for all of us. We're like, oh, it could mean that instead. She was you know, there to sell makeup, maybe. but the father saw more. She had style, she had flair. Mm. She was there. That's how she became the nanny. Yeah, people would call it inappropriate workplace hiring practices these days, but um, nonetheless. 151, it's what Trevor Barsby made to set up Queensland's first Sheffield Shield win. Um, They had come second five times in the previous uh, slightly more than five years, but not much more, and hadn't been able to get over the line. They were pretty sore about it. They had Stuart Law as the captain, which was interesting because Alan Border was still there um, in, in his sort of farewell year. He'd retired from Test cricket, but he wanted to have one more go around at the Sheffield Shield as the non-captaining <laughs> senior pro. Fine leg, so, it's a fine leg, please, a champion. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go, um, AB. Bo- Off to fine leg, buddy. <laughs> For all that doubtless <laughs> bullying that he handed out over the years when he was leading the team. <laughs> uh, I'm tipping you would have been slip or mid-wicket, but um, yeah, yeah I, I still don't think anyone would have told AB what to do at that point. The bowling attack, in retrospect, very good at the time, pretty raw. Andy Bickle, Carl Rackerman was the other sort of old head. Paul Jackson was their left arm orthodox and they had the exquisitely named Dirk Tazalar. Oh, yes. backing up to round out the four. So they, they bowled out South Australia for 214 and then Hayden makes 74 and Barsby makes 151 opening the batting. And, you know, they've pretty much got it wrapped up at that point. Martin Love batting at three makes 146. Border makes 98. He gets out when he's bowled by Ben Johnson, who was presumably on the juice um, <laughs> and charging in in 9.4 seconds. 9.79! Ben Johnson, yeah. no, no, sorry, 9.83, was it? 9.83, if it's legal. <laughs> it was not. It was not, as it turned out. It was not legal. No, <laughs> nor was anyone else in that in that race. <laughs> There's that great piece about the dirtiest race of all time where yep. they said there was one of the one of the eight finalists did not get banned or, like, investigated for um, illegal. I mean, Carl Lewis got braces when he was like 33. Yeah. Dan old plan. Carl Lewis needs braces. Chattergram. Carl Lewis needs braces. Yeah, he also um, got, he tested positive for a bunch of banned stimulants, which somehow he got thrown out on a technicality um, in some way. So Real Cold War energy around his 84 performances. They're like, uh, Carl Lewis, a little, little bit questionable, but the Russians aren't here and we have a Cold War to win. <laughs> mm, Carl Lewis seems to have actual rocket packs uh, in his shoes. <laughs> Is that, look, we do what we got to do. So, yeah, Ben Johnson, at least the years on the juice, got him through Ellen Border for 98, but it, it didn't help too much. The tail made heaps of runs all up. They make 664, batting one ball shy of 200 overs and setting the trend for Queensland being absolute ruthless bastards in shield finals and just batting until the opposition was dead. So... 
um, South Australia did make them work for it in the last innings, making 349, but still lost by an innings. The Lord Mayor, or the former Lord Mayor, was Clem Jones, who'd been the Labor Lord Mayor for nearly 15 years through the 60s and 70s. He was a surveyor, uh, and so he came in with a brief of civic improvement and his big achievement was installing sewage lines all through Brisbane which used to run on septic tanks before Clem Jones got there which really isn't that long ago. So his name is now on the big airport tunnel that you'll take if you're arriving in Brisbane. The the Clem Jones tunnel will, will take you here and there across town. He's still revered in that town and as for Trevor Barsby he's still got his daughter Gemma going around in the big bash uh, who was bowling with both arms this season she finally pulled it out in a game where she switched she's ambidextrous and she can bowl off spin or left arm orthodox but she was bowling them both in the same innings depending on the matchups which is exactly the kind of area we like to see that's the 151 for Brendan Legg yeah, there, there, there was a there was a grandstand named after um, Clem Jones at the Gabba as well, the old Gabba before they turned it into kind of one generic bowl, which I presume they're going to have to knock mm. down before they are an Olympic city uh, in 2032 to give that greater capacity and maybe even uh, to be the Olympic Stadium, I suppose. That'd be kind of cool if Clem Jones ended up having a, a stand named after him. Uh, at an Olympic stadium. And they got the trees back as well. You know, you sort of read about, you read John Harms talk about uh, how the Gabba once was when he was growing up underneath the Casharinas mm. and all the rest of it and uh, and the wind whistling through uh, behind the scoreboard there. Um, I think they could do plenty to make the Gabba a, a better ground for cricket into the future using the Olympic Games as the catalyst for that. Because frankly, at the moment, it's comfortably the worst test venue in Australia. So it, it needs work. And, and Jeff, you can enjoy the Gabba in a couple of weeks' time when you're there and I'm not. I will enjoy it. I will enjoy sitting there for five days watching it rain, um, which looks like uh, this is the first day when we're recording this that it hasn't been absolutely hosing down for pretty much the entire time I've been here and I'm in day 10 of quarantine. So it'll be good good to have done two weeks of isolation in order to report <laughs> on the rain. But these are, the, uh, these are the, the risks you take in the world of cricket. Jeff, next number, and I think it might be our last number uh, of the uh, first Mm -hmm. batch before we come to the revisits, is from Declan Lawler. Only appropriate that we talk about Declan again after the extraordinary work he did on behalf of the Lord's Taverners running the Thames Path earlier this year. Now, his number being 628 in GBP, I've seen Declan bowl. He has taken bags of 6 for 28 in his time, I'm sure. He's He's quick. He's, he, he moves it around. He has that kind of approach. I reckon he's had big days where he's taken a six for. I also think that he'd be a big fan of Liam Plunkett, who he looks a little bit like Liam Plunkett, actually, come to think of it. Um, sadly, he only played uh, 13 test matches in cap 628. He, he was probably a better test bowler than that, but just the way his career played out, he didn't get as many opportunities with the red ball as he did with the white. Of course, he goes on to become a World Cup champion, so all is forgiven there. Now, there have been nine instances of six for 28 in international cricket. And I want to tell you about a couple of them, Jeff. The one by a woman was by Betty Wilson. Now, she was born 100 years ago last week, so I thought it was worth just going through hey. the, the day that Betty Wilson took six for 28. Jeff, of course, you've told her story a birthday. in, in hey, great Betty depth Wilson. in the past. Yeah. Her 100th birthday. Get her up here. But um, the six for 28 is noteworthy because it was on her quite extraordinary test debut. It was just the eighth women's test at Wellington at the Basin Oval in 1948. Mm-hmm. It's a test match that we were talking about just a few weeks ago. Uh, we were referring to Una Paisley, who made her debut in 
that game as well and made a century. She made 108 out of Australia's 338 for six declared. So Una is one of 27 Australians who've made a century at the first time of asking at test level. On Una, we lamented when telling her story how little there is about her floating around on the internet. Seemed kind of wrong that a player who's part of this group of esteemed Australians that doesn't sort of just have more out there, even something as basic as a a Wikipedia or quick info biography that goes beyond the the, the very, very generic career stats and and that kind of thing. And sure enough, uh, Pat Rogers came to the rescue somewhat. Pat Rogers being the great cricket historian, he's got a book out at the moment. He wrote to say, I found a nice piece about Una when she was playing in the 1949 series against England. A little surprisingly, Bill O'Reilly was reporting for the Herald on the third test and was so impressed by her bowling, he wrote, when Betty Wilson and Una Paisley were entrusted with the spin attack, from this time forward, I shall steadfastly refrain from saying that so-and-so batted or bowled like a woman. So, again, you know, a bit of progress there early on. Bill O'Reilly realising that these women could seriously play. Uh, back to Betty Wilson. So, on debut, she's taken a three-fer, she's taken a six-fer. Between times, she made 90. So, she was one wicket away from <laughs> taking 10 wickets uh, on her test debut, and she was 10 runs away from making it a 10-wicket match and a century. She would have been one of 28 had that been <laughs> Uh, there and then. The latter... Uh, well, she her, did it. She did it again later in her career. She did. She did do that, indeed, as you explained a couple of weeks ago. The latter, the 6 for 28, came in the uh, when New Zealand were following on and were all out for 87. Her figures, 14 overs, 5 maidens, 6 for 28. Four of them were clean bowled. And she bettered that in her second test match a year later in 1949 against England at Adelaide, so the same series that Bill O'Reilly was reporting on, when Wilson took 6 for 23 from 26.5 overs, which means that after two test matches, Betty Wilson had 19 wickets at 6.68. She added seven more wickets in her third test match as well. Quite astonishing, really. How's this? She took five wickets in an innings at test level on four occasions, but none of them were actually five. She took three sixfers and a seven for seven, which was what you referred to a few weeks ago. That was a decade after her debut. Mm-hmm against England at Melbourne uh, in 1958. All up, 11 test matches, 68 wickets at 11.8. A batting average of 58, quite astonishing. I mentioned Pat Rogers earlier in the answer. Before we finish up, something else from him. The other week we were discussing the inconsistency in Ernie Main's career. We were kind of frazzled by the fact that different sources talked about a 1914 tour of America, which he led, and a 1913 trip, and it didn't quite tally. So Pat naturally went and looked it up and dropped us a line. He says, This has recently came in the, into my possession, proof that the tour did occur in 1913. It's the official photograph of the 1913 Tourists of America with the official insignia on there as well. Um, There were 53 matches played from the 14th of May when they played their first in Suva in Fiji and they played all the way through until the 27th of September. Predictably, Jeff, five were given first-class status. (laughs) Only 12 (laughs) players were used. 12 players, as you do, across 53 games. Uh, Victor Trumper pulled out just a couple of days uh, before they left. The Australians lost one game uh, to a mob called Germantown in Philadelphia, so not quite the gentlemen of Philadelphia, but kind of uh, along the same lines. Uh, There was a subsequent tour uh, in, in 1914, which is why there's that confusion. But it does mean, Jeff, that his wisdom obituary is incorrect. So I think that we should try and get Ernie Main's Crick Info slash Wisdom profile updated. We have to just triple check this, but I think there might be a way when we can get 
an update made to the official record because now Pat Rogers has dug out the photo. How's that sound? These are the reasons we're here. These are the big issues that we tackle on Storytime. That's the end of the new numbers. If you want to send us one, very easy, patron.com slash the final word. In doing so, you'll help us keep making the show. You'll score yourself access to the uh, listeners' hangout Discord page, discount tickets, uh, other things that we put up on the page just for the people who are subscribed to it. So it's good fun. Uh, come along, help us make the show, and um, you stand a very good chance of winning the Brick Lane beers as well. Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Final Word story time, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Before we begin part two, we've received a tweet in from our friend and patron, Adam Soffer. He wanted us to give a plug to this wonderful effort from a Melbourneian called Ollie, a young Melbourneian. It's called First Eleven Cricket. I'll bung it in the show notes. And it looks like what Ollie's done here has created a game called First Eleven Cricket, massive cricket fan. So it's a themed card game. Would have been the perfect thing for us growing up, Jeff. We would have played that for day after day after day, which involves test match statistics. That's how the game runs. It says here it takes two minutes to learn, five to 20 minutes to play. And how's this for Ollie, who's a youngster, donating 50% of the proceeds to uh, the Cancer Council of Australia. So thanks to Adam for bringing it to our attention and good on you, Ollie. Uh, first 11 cricket, we'll bung that mm-hmm. in the show. Now it's time for some revisits. The first of these, 626, that was from Jack Firth, Jeff, and you got to the bottom of it. Yeah, this is strictly speaking a confirmation but with some extra info. So we talked about George Brown taking 626 first-class wickets despite having a test career in which he was a wicketkeeper and never bowled. Adam, I think you mentioned his Hampshire team being bowled out for 15 yes. at one point. What we didn't mention is that they actually won that game. <laughs> that was that was the bit that we left off. Ah, they got bowled out for 15. Yes. This, this is a famous match that you, that you will remember. So it was Surrey who bowled them out. I know maybe I was doing this with Norcross and, and you. And no, 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 it was me. It was, I, no, it was, it was definitely – well – whether I set the pins up for Daniel or otherwise, I remember looking at the scorecard, but I didn't clock they actually won the game. Yes. So we we, we didn't get onto that either. But So they'd conceded 223, then been bowled out for 15 in the space of 8.5 overs. Phil Mead, top score with six not out. Naturally got asked to follow on. And it was going sort of better, but not great at 274 for eight, you know, small lead at that point. And then who else but our man George Brown should put on a partnership of 177 with the number 10 wicketkeeper, Walter Livesey. So Brown makes 172, Livesey makes 110 not out. Number 11, Stuart Boys, helps out another 70 runs. Hello, boys. And they're all out for 521. So they made 34.7 times as many runs in their second innings <laughs> as they did in their first <laughs> innings. And they set Warwickshire 314, bowled them out for 158 and won by 155. Easy peasy. What a sport. Got to love it. Uh, Chris Arkell is our next revisit. 591. And Chris sent us a subsequent clue, Jeff. I think it's a record that will never be broken. It has an England players only 100 and an Australian players only 50. And how they did this in a low scoring tied <laughs> match. First class, both were rebels. The 591 is a match number for the English player. There's nothing Adam Collins loves more than a tied match. So over to you. I loved researching this. I, I mean, the, the deduction, I don't want to sort of blow my own trumpet here, but this took some doing. But I thought to myself, Rebels, let's start with the Rebel Tourists. Let's look at games that are played in the 80s and kind of wound it back to a couple of county fixtures specifically. One of those 
in 1984. At Hastings in July of 1984, which is where Rachel, my partner, was born just seven months earlier. Uh, right, Sussex were playing Kent in this game. Dickie Bird was officiating. Kent bat first and they're all out for 92. They're not helped by their captain, Chris Tavare or Chris Cowdery or Alan Knott. Their test players all did very little. Um, Sussex ran through them. Sussex fared a little better, though, with the bat. They were all out for 143. And Terry Alderman, we'll come back to him in a mm-hmm. bit, took four for 46. Gosh, he loved bowling in England. That, of course, was three years after his first trip there in 81 when he took 41 Ashes wickets. Now, Kent, the second time around, sent out a night watchman. In comes the veteran. In comes deadly Derek Underwood, one of Kent's finest. By that stage, he's 39 years of age. It's been two years since his final test match because since then, he'd been kind of hanging out in South Africa. He'd been a rebel tourist. He was one of the first rebels to go, indeed. I think it was in 82-83, the winter of 82-83. But he only went and smacked 111 out of 243 to get Kent right back in it and give themselves a lead. Now, Underwood, per the clue from Chris, never made another first-class 100. This was it for him. And Mm. down the bottom of the list, he was supported by Terry Alderman, who was a shit-ass batsman. At test level, Alderman averaged (laughs) 6.5. At first-class level, Alderman averaged 8.3. Well, on this occasion, batting alongside Underwood, he made 52 not out, and it was his only Half century, again, in keeping with Chris's clue. And suddenly, they've set Sussex 193, who, you know, that's a, that's a tough tally to chase when, you've, when you remember that you bowled out the opposition for 92 on, on morning one. But anyway, more to do for Alderman. He took four of the first five wickets to fall. Underwood took the other. Um, Sussex steadied, though. At one stage, they were 186 for six, so they required seven runs with four wickets in hand and promptly lost four for six. Alderman took one at the end, which gave him to finish five for 60, nine for the match to go alongside his 52 not out. The match was tied, the 45th first-class game ever to be tied, and the first in the county championship for a decade. There's only been 67 tied across the 250-odd years they've played first-class cricket. Um, It was Underwood's 591st first-class game, thus the number from Chris Arkell. He'd go on to play until 1987. He played 676 games by the time he was done for 2,465 wickets at 20.3. And here's the bit that I found interesting. So Alderman... And Underwood in 1984 proved to be quite the combination with the ball uh, for Kent. In Alderman's case, he took 76 wickets at 23 in that season. But they obviously got on pretty well because press fast forward a year. And where does Terry Alderman go? Exactly where Derek Underwood had been a couple of years prior. He became a rebel tourist as well. So in terms of where they were at in their respective careers, mm. Underwood wasn't long back from South Africa. Alderman wasn't far away from, from taking uh, the money and, and going over to South Africa. But they were joint uh, together uh, alongside each other in the Sussex dressing room in 1984 and again in 1986 and obviously had a, a good relationship uh, both in the middle and, and probably off the field as well uh, based on the fact that, that Alderman did exactly what Underwood did. Uh, and that's why the clue says the 591 is the match number, not a match number. Yes. Because I would have been looking for figures or something like that but to try <laughs> to figure out that it was his 591st match is um, horrifically <laughs> difficult and impossible to look up. We got there. Well done. Well done. <laughs> you've... you've, you've, you've you smashed that one. That's a great answer. Uh, Matthew Johnson next up with 519. Right. Clue here as well. Um, we looked at the 1929 fifth test where Bradman and Ryder had that 
sort of nice little transition, didn't we? But mm-hmm. Matthew's pledge relates to a best performance from a favourite player, but not in the format where they were best known for. This player gets a few mentions on the podcast, but I don't think his story has been given the full final word treatment yet. Jeff, what say you? Well, it's relevant that on the ticket purchasing list for our live show, Sexy Ryan Thomas is coming to our live show in Melbourne. So, you know, people, uh, anybody who wants to meet Sexy Ryan Thomas, this is your opportunity. And this clue is about Sexy Ryan Harris, um, the, the man who gave Sexy Ryan Thomas his name. Uh, Sexy Ryan Harris took five for 19 in one-day internationals as a career best. Also a career best for Flintoff in ODIs. Um, They're both known more for test match cricket, but surely this is about Harris, given it's an Australian dollars pledge. The best ever one-day international bowling averages, we've talked about this on the show before, Rashid Khan, 18.57, Joel Garner, 18.84, Sexy Ryan Harris, 18.9. He's third all time. And this is on a cutoff of 1,000 deliveries. And he bowled 1,031 deliveries in his 21 (laughs) matches. So he got there. He's qualified. He also has the best bowling strike rate in one day history. 24.3 balls per wicket. Ryan Harris has the best of all time in that 1,000-ball qualification category. But basically played almost all of his one-dayers in the space of six months in 2010. So he got the 5 for 19 in Perth against Pakistan, hoovered up wickets in his first few games, took another 5 for in his... I think he took one in the in his previous game and then the 5 for 19 was his third game and he got five more. So he had one wicketless match in his career and that was when India got bowled out in 29 overs and he only got to bowl five overs. So he was a, a wicket-taking machine for the short time that he played in one-day cricket. But he's, you know, mostly known for test cricket. He's a player who honed his craft at South Africa, South Australia rather, not South Africa, although he was good in South Africa, for most of a decade. Then he moved back to Queensland, um, finally got picked for an ODI in 2009 as a one-off, back into that team in early 2010, played a couple of T20s, and then he picks up a test debut after he's turned 30. Mm. He's one of those uh, fairly rare players to do that. He plays two tests, takes nine wickets, gets his first injury, and this is the pattern for his whole career. So he gets back at the end of 2010 for the Ashes, plays the middle three matches, but breaks down at the MCG after taking nine wickets in Perth. Gets back for two tests in Sri Lanka and one in South Africa and then gets injured again plays two tests in the home summer against India and gets injured again. Um, and then he sort of has his his best period where he comes good in 2013, plays both tests in the West Indies, four out of five in England, um, and he's left out. He's not injured for the first one, but he's left out and then comes back at Lords and gets on the honour board with five wickets and doesn't get left out again. And then he plays all five at home through the whitewash ashes. He bowls the Alistair Cook delivery that that he'll be known for for the rest of his life. Um, Has an absolutely outstanding series opposite Johnson. Goes to South Africa, plays through the three tests that they play there. And it's only by the eighth test in that sequence, so five Ashes tests and three South Africa tests, in the eighth test in that sequence is when Peter Siddle misses that game with injury, but until then they've had the same bowling attack, which has been Mitchell Johnson, Ryan Harris, Peter Siddle, Nathan Lyon, all the way through those two series. He goes on to play three out of four against India in the home summer of 2014-15, misses the match in Brisbane, I think, when Josh Hazelwood makes his debut, Mm. who then stays on in the team. And has this sort of late career flourish with the bat as well, Ryan Harris. He made his best score of 74 in Melbourne against India. And then in Sydney, 
scores 25 off nine balls. Now, for an innings of 25 runs or more, that's the third fastest test innings in history. Strike rate of 277. So he's on a few record lists, Ryan Harris. He goes to England in 2015, but his knee is buggered. It's bone on bone. And he retires before the start of the series. You and I were there in that unprepossessing little temporary uh, cloth pavilion thing at the side of the field in Essex when Ryan Harris said that he was calling it a day. But 5.19, his best figures in one-day internationals where he's still among the very, very best to have ever played the game. Yeah, you look at it now and you you wonder how he didn't end up being part of an Australian white ball successful tournament at some point, but just he he sort of uh, fell between the raindrops on on that front, but it didn't diminish the fact that he used that as a catapult into the test team and and what a career he had. Uh, Thank you, Jeff, for that. And thank you, Matthew Johnson, for the revisit. We've got one here from Nick Tucson. Jeff, uh, it's a good one too. Uh, The number is 296. What's the clue first, though? We looked at uh, Artie Wellard and we looked at Joey Palmer and Nick Tewson says, in many ways, I wish I had been referring to Arthur Wellard, the six-hitting machine. It's not Joey Palmer, though I love the dustiness multiplier effect. This player qualifies on both the how long ago and limited matches played axes of the dusty old bastard Cartesian plane. The stat makes up part of his first-class record. He was born and died in the same town in regional New South Wales. I came across him while compiling my all-time New South Wales men's team. What else do you do while in lockdown? But there is a reason he didn't play for Australia more. Yeah, there is. Uh, right, let's, let's just work through my, um, my logic here. So uh, it, had it been 297... I would have gone, oh, Harry Moses, who made 297 for New South Wales against the Vicks in 1887. Uh, He had six test matches and a very good first-class career, but didn't quite convert it. Not perhaps quite into best 11 New South Wales contention, though. However, how I did this was I went through the best bowling and the best batting for every New South Wales player ever and stumbled upon a 9 for 68 and realised that I didn't know who Tom McKibben is, who took this 9 for 68, so I digged a bit deeper, and I'm pretty sure that's exactly who Nick is talking about. So 9 for 68 are the fourth best figures for New South Wales in uh, in Shield history. That was in 1895 against Queensland at the Ecker, uh, the ground that uh, you and I recorded that a couple of years ago, Jeff, where Bradman made his debut uh, in the summer of 28-29. Now, what do we know of Tom? Now, first of all, he had a moustache. He bowled quick off Good. spin. He was born in uh, Bathurst in 1870, which is where he died as well. So that's kind of in keeping with the second part of Nick's clue about being from the same town. Um, He went to uh, England in 1896 after making his test debut in 1895. And this is when things get interesting. So in 1896, that Ashes series, he he bowls well in the test matches, takes a couple of threefers, but it's across the broader tour where he takes 101 wickets at spit when he's suddenly getting plenty of attention for all the sort of wrong reasons. He's seen, in a word, as a chucker. And we all know, Jeff, and you've written about this, how damaging it was for players around that time, really, all the way through until until television took over uh, in the 70s, where if you were seen as a chucker, it could really destroy your career. It didn't do so initially. He came back to Australia in 1896-97 and took 44 shield wickets, which was then a record. It, it lasted for a good 40-odd years, I think, until Chuck Fleetwood Smith uh, broke it uh, in the 30s. But it was written at the time, according to his obituary, that there was little doubt that he continually threw. He was getting this huge spin, and there's an image that I found that, that, that kind of shows how he bowled the ball. But here's the thing. He had loads of flex in his wrist. 
he, it kind of reminds me, reading a passage here, that he was a little bit like Murali. It, it reads as follows. Placing his arm upon a table with the hand palm down, he can, keeping the forearm rigid, twist his hand around from the wrist until his palm faces upward. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Try and do that. That, to mm. me... I'm doing it right now. Yeah. I, I bet I bet like at least 5% of the people listening to this show are trying to do it. Yeah, right exactly. I'll, I'll read it again. <laughs> Place... Arm upon the table. Place his arm upon the table uh-huh. with the with the hand palm face down, and with his forearm rigid, he can twist the hand around from the wrist until mm-hmm. his palm faces upward. I mean, that, that's not that's that's not easy. I can do it if I turn my forearm over, but presumably you've got to move your forearm staying facing down. Yeah, I think your forearm's got to remain absolutely still to to make it justifiable. So mm. yeah, he's a bit of a precursor for sort of freakishly flexible off spinners he was picked for the 1887 88 ashes anyway but not a lot of success and that was kind of that in terms of his international career but a huge first class record which is why i'm sure nick was wondering why he never gets mentioned in terms of the best new south wales 11s 320 wickets for the blue baggers at 19.7 with 28 five wicket hauls and a first class economy rate of 2.96, which is what uh, Nick's number is. So uh, Tom McKibben, uh, the 72nd Test cricketer for Australia uh, with 17 Test wickets. But I want to restore his reputation. I want to get Wisdom fixed up for Ernie Main, and I want to restore the reputation of Tom McKibben, who probably wasn't a chucker. It was just that they they hadn't seen someone with his flexibility come around before, and and they may not have again until until Morley arrived a, a century later. Also, you know, chucking is overrated as a sin in cricket. It. Like everyone gets really exercised about it, but you know what? Unless you're bowling 170 k's an hour by piffing it at people's heads, you know, if you're spinning, if you got a little bit of bend when you're spinning, I don't really care. I think that, I think that's why they brought in. I think that's why they brought in the 15 percent for that exact reason. They realised that to ask spinners to bowl with a dead straight arm might might diminish the game somewhat. Last revisit, Andy Cox, uh, 373. Now, this is one that uh, I ran around after for a long time. He said, I suspect it's one only Jeff will get, or people who fall into the intersection of followers of the Guardian's OBO and Final Word listeners. I said on here that I didn't want my pledge to be pants, which was a ridiculously obscure hint. Okay, so this, this relates back to me on the OBO saying during the Lord's Test match, I think in the first innings, I said generously the, best, the rest of India's batting is pants. Shami is a number 11, so is Bumrah, so is Siraj. By lottery, one of them has to bat at number nine. Then in the second innings, they went on to make a shitload of runs and won the Test match on that basis. So, that was, so I, I got... That that's where we were looking, but the 373 I couldn't find. And it wasn't until Andy had to help me out with this a few times until we got to a tweet that he had sent me where he said, um, uh, where are we? He said, he said, that's quite the setup. My comment was quite the setup for 73 from the final three wickets. So that's where the three for 73 comes from. But I still can't figure out where that comes from in the match because it isn't there. So, look, India's bowlers in the series between them made 362. So that's not 373. Uh, their average in the innings at Lords was 35.33. So that's not 373. Then there's his tweet saying that the last three made 73 runs, but they didn't. Because if you tally up Ishant Sharma, Muhammad Shami and Jasper Pumra between them, they made 106 collectively. Siraj didn't bat in that innings. Nor is it 
any of the partnerships because the last wicket partnership was 89. So the last three didn't make 73, unless this comes from another test match that mm. isn't the Lord's test match, which I'm somehow forgetting where the last three did make 73, but I don't think it could be. So I think maybe it's a miscounting, but it does relate back to that correspondence uh, and, and it notionally relates to the, the last three Australia, uh, Indian tailenders making a bunch of runs. They did make 73 and then they made more than 73 to set up the win at Lords. Yeah, it might have been three partnerships that combined for 73, which would be separate to the runs the players made. But yeah, I, I, I acknowledge But the that. one, the, the single partnership was 89. Yeah. Shami and Bora yeah. put on 89 together. So the, yeah, it can't, be, it can't be that, but maybe it's just a miscount with the numbers. But that's, that's its spiritual home. All right, we're still looking for Coxie's big break there with 373. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, confirmations, <laughs> Jeff, before we round off the show. The first is from Graham666. Dan Norcross smashed the Morton in Marsh story time. What a hero. I have no idea what you're talking about there, Jeff, because I didn't have the time to listen to everything that Daniel said last week, but I trust that was a good story. You must listen back to that. It's one of okay. the great solutions. It's a, it's a true, <laughs> wonderful piece of detective work. Uh, John Lansdell with 14. This was another Norcross number. The clue was a fearsome West Indian fast bowler forced to make an early exit from his bath. Dan actually solved this talking with John on Twitter, uh, so we can bring that onto the show. This was a match in which Essex made 237 after a day of rain and then in the final session at Chelmsford, Surrey got bowled out for 14. That's John's number. Crazy swing bowling for Norbert Phillip and Neil Foster. They took the lot within 15 overs. Sylvester Clark was one of several players who was in the bath at the end of the day, recovering after bowling and got dragged out covered in soap um, <laughs> without any time to put socks on because Howdy. the wickets fell so quickly. Blimey. The scorecard read 2-6, naught, 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 two, four, naught, not out for Pat Pocock, final word favourite. Uh, remarkably, the match ended in a draw. Surrey followed on but finished at 185 for two the second time around and it's also the one famous oh, for yes. Henry Blofeld leaving early to get on the piss, sending his copy to the office and saying, just fill in the blanks that say at the close Surrey were X for Y, <laughs> um, except those numbers were 10 for 14. So... Um, <laughs> it had to be rewritten in the office. Got to love the uh, got to love the way they used to go about it back in the old days of uh, working in the press box. Uh, thank you, John. Next up, Sam Brown, two fifty. Correct, Jeff. You nailed the nerd pledge. Only thing I'd add is dropping my favourite little town near Tamworth, Bendemir, a beautiful name and the home of Josh Hazelwood. I played junior cricket with and against his big brother, who was also a gun-fast bowler. Impeccable timing with when this came up on your episodes with the pain-worn captaincy connection. Crazy how often that happens. Uh, Simon Ward's 243 was indeed what a Nottinghamshire chased against Essex in the One Day Cup final of 89. I have a particular recollection of that match, he says, as those finals were prestigious events. Mm. Essex and Notts, two of the best teams. Uh, and I followed the game across the day on the BBC, a fluctuating affair bookended by Franklin Stevenson's slower ball to dismiss Hardy and Eddie Hemming's heroics at the end. I watched the climax to the cheers of a packed clubhouse with the excited Richie Benno on TV exclaiming, he's got it away. <laughs> and left it at that. Beautiful. Thank you, Simon. 471, Andrew Dilberson uh, was indeed 471, the total deliveries Australia faced at Mahali before Ed Cowan was dismissed in 2013. I love the stories on both eps when it came up. Good one, Jeff. That was nicely, nicely solved. 
And Jake Cunliffe's 106 was indeed the Zimbabwe all-rounder Paul Strang's century in Pakistan. Uh, the third player to reach the number bit that I couldn't solve was simply that Paul Strang, says Jake, was the third men's player to score 106 exactly while doing the century plus ah. five wickets double in a test. That's it. That's it. We've done it. That's another story time. I'm looking down at my clock at hour 42. I'm not sure what that'll edit out to, but it's been another long conversation in excess of 100 minutes uh, with me and Jeff. If you like what we do and you want to get involved in Nerd Pledge, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Uh, we love everybody who's been involved with us on that platform over the last couple of years. May it continue to grow and prosper. May you also join us if you're in Melbourne or Adelaide, the 13th of December in Melbourne with Chris Rogers, the 14th of December in Adelaide with Stephen Finn. Discounted tickets for patrons or uh, in the ticket link which is at finalwordcricket.com forward slash live come along bring your friends drink a few brick lanes with Jeff and I it's going to be fun thank you to the team at Bad Producer Productions not least Dave Collins who edits us manfully every week he is stoic to the last love you DC thanks for listening thank you linesman thank you ball boys we'll do it all again next week it has been the final word story time bye Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.